Anyway, this bit is all not for podcast. You should have pushed your not for podcast button. Oh, yeah, I should have done. I forgot. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very 73rd episode of Oxathorpe, a podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom. This episode is coming to you on the 22nd of December 2022. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And um, I hadn't quite put it together until I said those words out loud, but this is the Christmas episode. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. Hey. Can you put some, like, jingle bells and shit? I hope St. Dr. Thought brings you everything you desire, or a podcast, one of those. Um, right then, we had letters of comment. So let's start with Raj writing in about episode 71. Um, part of the problem, we have been recording, listeners, a peek behind the curtain. We have been recording about a week early for a few weeks now because of various scheduling trivialities, which are too boring to go into. But this does mean our locks, there's more overlap than normal. Uh, so Raj, thank you for reading, writing in about episode 71. Uh, Raj says that they were promised graphs. I have made the graphs. I put them in Discord. I forgot to put them on the Octothorpe Twitter, um, but they do exist. So that is progress. In 72, I again mentioned graphs and again haven't done them, but this time they will be in the show notes because now they do exist. So that is concrete progress. Uh, he says he liked the idea of a best publisher, Hugo, until Liz pointed out how limited the winners have been in the Locus Awards. Uh, I still think it might be worth a go and says he loved Alison's episode art, which was great episode art. Thank you. Um, nobody else has mentioned it this time. Chris did love your episode art and he used it to prove that you were wrong. Uh, I say prove very lightly. We'll go into that later. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I have like a whole rant about how it turns out that if you're going to set a piece of a word with some negative space in the O's, then Octothorpe is a much better word for it than Andor because um, because it makes the whole thing look more balanced because there are three O's. And although it's still got the really weird kerning thing going on, it's it's kind of because there's a tracking issue with the Andor logo. Um, it's at the end of the word rather than at the beginning of the word. So it doesn't look so naff. Is the tracking issue that the Andor logo has gone into hyperspace and therefore you have to employ active tracking? But I have finished Andor now, but I was told I couldn't talk about it at all this week, so I'm just going to slip bits of it in everywhere. <laughs> I just... Oh, Andor's so good, everyone. Go and watch it. It's really good. Um, except that one of the things that's really good about it is it's got this fantastic 70s aesthetic, except the logo, which has absolutely... is clearly not a 70s piece of graphic design. It's, I mean, it's very annoying. Anyway, where were we? Raj also said that he would vote for Claire Briley for Best Letter Hack, but only if she starts writing poems again. Uh, we have had a lack of poems this year. We should we should get on that. Next year, listeners, please write more poems. Seriously, if you get a Christmas poem to us in the next couple of days, we might record it and stick it out in the episode we're otherwise going to miss. Mm, yes. So we won't be recording a full episode um, over the Christmas period. So at the moment, our first episode in January stands um, empty of content. If you'd like to help rectify that, please uh, send in your uh, readings of a visit by St. Octothorpe and I will combine them together and you can, um, you, you can hear your voice on the pod. 
not not readings of it. Um, your your interpretation of it. Write us a verse for a visit from St Octothorpe. Don't all make it the first verse or the last one, or or it won't work. I don't know. It sounds like a kind of intriguing Lovecraftian hellscape, just repeated. Intriguing Lovecraftian hellscape. The podcast. I mean, your, your your problem is that the listeners have stopped writing us poetry, and so I think no one's going to write us any poetry here, and so it will be a dud. Liz, I hereby on the podcast bet you the princely sum of one pint of beer that people will write in. Perry Ann Lurie wrote to us to say that the Washington Science Fiction Association, which she says do not confuse with WUSFUS, which is of course the World Science Fiction Society, or presumably WAWA, which is the Boston and Washington area. Baltimore. Baltimore. Baltimore and Washington area. World What do the Wawawas stand for? Peoples. Look, if you're going to make this joke, you should have done the research for your joke ahead of time. It is the Baltimore, Washington area Worldcon Association Incorporated. And as we all know, you pronounce it. It's not that either. Um, the Washington Science Fiction Association gives an award for best story published by a small press every year. Um, so that's quite good. I approve. Um, and crucially, she says that they give an award to the editor of the story as well, which is why it was relevant to our discussion of editors and so on. Yes, and that is that is a good idea. It's good to hear that that happens at other science fiction awards. And I think there's no reason that that could not happen in the Hugos. And actually... I'm going to go, I'm going to discuss my graphs because uh, they've unexpectedly become relevant. So I drew some bar charts of the of the distribution of the number of nominations in each category. And I would say there are, broadly speaking, three ways you can you can kind of group these categories. So there's there's um, one category which has best novel, best short story, better best dramatic presentation in both forms and those are ones where you get significantly more people nominating five than you do nominating one and i think that basically says there's an awful lot of novels and short stories and best dramatic presentations of which people are aware and so lots of people nominate lots of them and that is good and then there's ones where the number of people that nominate five is very close to the number of people nominating one so that's like novella novelette um professional artist uh, and semi-prosine um, and those are ones where, like, clearly there's slightly fewer options, but if you're tuned in, then there are as many people who know one as know five. And I think that basically says that those are quite vibrant categories with quite a lot going on. I think in the case of semi-prosine, it probably means that the semi-prosine category is not um, adequately ref- reflecting the breadth of the semi-prosines in the field, perhaps. And then you get categories where the number of people who know one is way higher than the number of people who know more than one. And these are all the fan categories and both of the editor categories. And also best graphic story, best series and best related work. And I'm not sure I would have grouped series, graphic story and related work in this category, although having now seen the data, it makes a lot of sense. But yeah, basically, I think this is saying that people really don't know the field in terms of editor um, or in terms of the fan works. In the fan works, it's a bit to be expected because the fan works were obviously less high profile uh, than the pro works. And um, for long time listeners, you will know that fanzine editors have not always enthusiastically embraced the Hugo's fan awards. But in terms of editor, I think this is really pointing out that these categories are not particularly healthy ones, even at the nomination stage. And I do think that is further evidence that an alternative tack would be good 
because editing is a hugely important part of the genre and we should properly um, recognize it. And it doesn't look to me like the Hugos do a good job of that. Uh, and this and this backs that up, I think. I think it's also probably an argument against best series, uh, but that makes me sad because I like best series. So I'm conflicted. It'll be interesting to see best game. Thank you for doing the graphs. Um, that was cool. Yeah, no, they're good. It's it's amazing how visualizing data can let you draw conclusions that just tables of data don't. <laughs> he said with his "I do graphs for a living" hat on. Hooray for whoever invented the graph! Listeners, write in and tell us who invented the graph. I don't know, but I do know who invented the pie chart because it's it's one of these cool things. It's Mister Pie. I mean, I think everyone knows who invented the pie chart, right? Or who popularized the pie chart? Mister Pie. Florence Nightingale, who used it to get money out of the government because the notion that Florence Nightingale was a nurse and not a badass statistical expert <laughs> um, and and cast-iron administrator used data a lot to effect medical improvements um, is, is, well, you know, that's one of the things nurses do, but it's not the thing that nurses are traditionally held to do. So she was a nurse of the badass administrator and she is a honorary fellow of the Royal Statistical Society or something like that for that purpose. Or past president or whatever it is they do. And she invented the pie chart. Nice. Uh, I'm sorry I misgendered her as Mr. Pie. <laughs> um, my ex wrote in with some pedantry and I can't find his lock now, but it was basically, oh, no, you're going to have a Canada's going to have a high consulate because it's a Commonwealth country rather than a rather than an embassy. And that is, of course, correct. But dull. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and for those who don't know, Alison's ex is Mike Scott. Thank you very much for writing in, Mike. Christopher J. Garcia wrote in, uh, basically saying, Locus is a hugely important part of SF. And he says he hopes they meet their goal. And in the discussion we had last episode was that we all hope Locus will be here in 10 years in a sustainable form. I think the discussion we had last episode was around whether or not we think they're going about that in a way we think will reach that goal. And I think we're all a little bit sceptical, but if they pull it off, great. And we are all rooting for them to still be here in a decade, please, because they are an important part of the genre. And it is nice to have some of these old institutions knocking about. But yes, thank you very much for writing in, Chris. Uh, Chris did also mention the Andor logo, but we mentioned that earlier. Uh, But basically, he says that it's very clever. And so Alison is wrong. (laughs) <laughs> Chris also wrote at length about his low relationship with Locus on Locus's website, which we will put in the show notes for you. Complete with a picture of Chris, which I don't know how old that picture of Chris is, but you look very young, Chris. So let us know when that picture was taken. I have a picture taken of Chris roughly a decade ago where we met up for hijinks in San Francisco and he was wearing a T-shirt that said, Earth first, we'll strip mine the other planets later. And... He looked very young in that photo. The last 10 years have distinguished him. I think maybe having children makes you age. Alison sort of grinned. So I think I might be on something there, but we'll see. Yeah, no, no, I had children and then I turned around and it was 20 years later and I was 51. How did that happen? He also asked a question, which is, query, would John Paul be eligible for best John? And I've got a potentially controversial opinion here, which is if John Paul had a space in it, yes, but it doesn't. So no. Yeah, because you asked last week about Jonathan's and I was like, definitely not. I would I would be anti-Jonathan inclusion, mostly because people insist on calling me Jonathan, which is not my name. I did it once. I did it once. 
Oh no, I don't mind people doing it once. It's when people do it repeatedly. I did it once, and, and yes, I'd kind of because I go through people like, oh, hello, Liz, John, Marianne, Stephen, oh, Caroline. <laughs> because as previously mentioned, I'm in my fifties now. It's what we do. I go upstairs and forget what I came up for. See, I've been doing that since I was 18, so I'm a bit worried that when I get to my 50s, I'm going to be a hot mess. Emphasis on the hot, John. Hey! Um, we have a late entry from Phil. He says, The Space Shuttle Enterprise was indeed named after the Star Trek ship, but it wasn't NASA's first choice. It was going to be called Constitution, but a high-profile campaign by Star Trek fans persuaded them to go with Enterprise instead. Roddenberry named the Star Trek Enterprise after the USS Enterprise, which was the first nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. And Gene Roddenberry was apparently fascinated with it. So um, thank you very much to Phil for writing in. That was good context. And when you say Phil, that's Phil Dyson. Phil Dyson. Who was named after the vacuum cleaner or the Dyson Sphere, one of those. Yep. So we're going to segue seamlessly into talking about fan funds and we're going to do that because raj mentions at the end of his lovely um lock that the european fan fund has launched and we have not yet talked about it on the pod um and also there is a taff race so we're going to talk about those things listeners great congratulations to machine crack for getting together the european fan fund which um he's been talking about for a little while but um it's happening now and you if you're a european fan you can apply to the fund for a trip to next year's eurocon which is Swecon. yep it's in sweden unlike the smofcon and we'll get to that later it's called conflict foreshadowing called conflict being held in Uppsala, sweden uh 8th to the 11th of june 2023 i think this is a great idea i think it'll raise the profile of eurocons i think it will improve harmony across european fans um we love our european friends and our european listeners do we have any european listeners anyway no yeah no i think it is good uh my only thought is with it being a european fan fund i wonder if there could be some kind of Potential for trying to get the fan fund winners to travel by train rather than flying. Because one of my sort of worries about, you know, one of the things about fan funds is we do essentially pay for someone to fly quite a long distance. And I wonder if we could say, well, if you're taking, you know, a longish European fanish trip, maybe you could be encouraged to do it overland. Might be nice. Beginning, the this this is being put together on a bit of a shoestring. So it's not paying for an extended trip in the way that the other fan funds do. And it may be that um, going by train is outside the fund's budget. But I think that's something, definitely something they should think about working towards because if they were doing a more extended trip, doing that more extended trip by train would be awesome. Yeah, I mean, I mean, definitely, definitely like once the fund is, once the fund is more well established, I think this is something that could be really good because um, you could go, you could buy like an interrail pass or something. And like there are options there, which are quite cool. I will say that, if you are a Brit and you run for this and you win, I believe it will take you roughly one day to get from London to Uppsala by train. Uh, so I won't, I won't, I won't judge you harshly if you choose to avoid that. I think it probably works a lot better when the Eurocon's like in Brussels than it does when it's in uh, Uppsala, which is, I mean, you go to Copenhagen and then you go to Stockholm and then you keep going. It's a long way. I know it's a long way because I have friends who work there because it's good to study the Aurora there. And now I'm wondering whether I can go to the Eurocon and stay with my friend Dave. So, um, 
Hmm, intriguing. This is a great idea. This is something that the Canadians and the Antipodeans already have. There is Fafans, which is the um, Australian-New Zealand fan fund, which sends people from Australia and New Zealand to Australia and New Zealand. And then there is the Canadian Unity Fan Fund, which sends people to Canadian conventions. These are very good things. I don't think there's a US one. Please write in if I am wrong, listeners. And it is high time there was a European one. Uh, I'm very glad to see this has happened. Um, an important thing is that there is a there is a, a long-held wisdom that you don't run for one of the big three if you've already won one of the big three. So you don't run for Duff guff or taff if you've already won them um but the smaller ones don't uh, follow that rule so um there's no reason that like old taff winners and guff winners uh, can get involved so uh like christina lake for instance might be a really good eff uh candidate or you know other people of that ilk probably not if you've probably not if you're the current guff <laughs> a trip by train can start with seven hours from cornwall to london well, I was thinking when John said it'd take you a day to get to Uppsala, I'm like, well, how long of that is just getting to the like edge of the UK? Probably like 80%. Oh, no, I was doing it from London. From Newcastle, it's a day and seven hours. <laughs> and it's the seven hours, which is getting down to London. Or you could just take an overnight ferry somewhere, which is awesome. Yes, no, that is true. I mean, yeah, because I could take the ferry from Shields to Amsterdam, and then presumably I could take the train from Amsterdam. But you've still got to go, you've still got to go kind of up Denmark and then across the peninsula and then up Sweden. I think you can play, I think you can take an overnight ferry to Norway and then another ferry from Norway to Sweden. Oh, maybe. I mean, you may not be able to now because overnight ferries were better in the past. As with so many things. Pretty sure you can, I mean, you can go to Amsterdam, but I'm not sure you can go anywhere other than Amsterdam from Newcastle. I had another thing to ask about the European Fan Fund. I had two things. One is that presumably this is not directional. Any European fan can apply to go to any, you know, Eurocon. Yeah, I don't think there's any eligibility around you need to be a certain distance away from the Eurocon. But I think, you know, if you're a Swedish fan applying to go to conflict, then you probably feel that that might be a little bit rum. Yeah, but we probably do have to, it'll be interesting to see how it goes like in the first few years, because depending on how well it gets promoted in different regions, you could end up like, is there a re- is there a regionality voting thing like there is for TAF? Like, you know, how in TAF you have to win kind of, you know, both sides or, you know, get a certain number of votes from both sides, just because there is a potential of this be dominated by countries with more fans, right? So you always end up with, say, a UK fan traveling to a convention. So it'll be interesting to see like how it works with that voting and whether we do get kind of fans from all over Europe going to other places all over Europe whether it sort of ends up being a... I don't think that's kind of definitely how it will be, but I will be interested to see how it gets promoted. So the rules are on Marcin's website and they were posted in 2019. So we have had time. There has been a consultation phase. The plans have been on display in our local Marcin's website for three years and it's far too late to start making a fuss about it now. But I have the rules. So you have to live in a European country. You have to be going to Eurocon, which is in a country other than your country. You have to have been active in fandom for at least two years, which I think is more stringent than TAF. I don't think TAF has any rule about that. The previous two races have to have been won by candidates from different countries from the one that you are in. Uh If there will be no other candidates, this rule may be omitted. Um, They will find three nominators and at least one has to be from their country and at least one has to be from a different country. That answers some of our questions. Machine, you're great. You're a brick. Well done. Yes. Turns out if I had just read the rules, all this would have been explained. But instead, I just pontificate about it. 
Isn't that always the way? Uh, quite a lot of the time, yeah. So the nominations are open until the end of January and voting stops just after EasterCon, um, as is right and proper. So yes, if you are interested in running, then go for it. I think that would be brilliant. Liz, you going to go? Move back to Europe and then go to a Eurocon? Uh, it would be quite a, long, a lot of effort to go in order to get a trip to a Eurocon, I feel. Fair enough. Might wait until I live in a European country again. That is fair. Well, I was also, actually, I had one extra thing, which is, is this going to, like, when we have fan fund auctions, is now the European fan fund going to be one of the things which gets money from the fan fund auctions? I would hope so. Uh, 100%. I think it is a fantastic idea, and um, maybe this is parochial. Building the community of European fans is probably, I think, there is a much stronger community of English-speaking fans across the Atlantic and across the Pacific than there is links between different European fandoms. And so this is actually the one of the fan funds I think is going to be doing the best work for the next few years. Because I love TAF and I love Guff and I love Duff. I think in terms of cultural exchange, the culture is relatively accessible in those races. Whereas in this one, I think going to like a Swedish convention would feel much scarier to me. I mean, I guess it's not surprising that you're less likely to go to conventions in countries that don't speak English if you speak English. I, I think that's probably entirely understandable impulse, but I do think more things to encourage that kind of cross-linking might be good. Many European conventions have an English track. We should we should do more to publicise conventions in Europe, which we can do as a as a leading community podcast, European community podcast. Yes, Europeans, right in. Taff, can we say something about Taff? Yes. Taff, Alison has been machinating behind the scenes again, and her machinations have borne fruit. <laughs> I haven't really. At Novacon, Sandra Bond said she was thinking of running, and I said, "Yes, do it." That's it, really. And then, and then, Sandra Bond is running for Taff, and I am one of the nominators. And we have two candidates, and the other is Mikolai um, Kovaleski, who ran last time, but was beaten by fear along with lots of other people and um so it's a great race both of these are good candidates and i am one of sandra's nominators so i'm going to tell you that she's a fantastic tough candidate and you should vote for her um she's incredibly interesting and funny and she has done a whole lot for fandom and she is also a very good author and poet um and if you're listening to this sandra please feel free to write in with a christmas poem for octothorpe <laughs> Uh, no, two good candidates, um, one good race coming right up. I'll put a link in the show notes. I have something to say about Guff very quickly. Oh, good. Um, which is that I'm going to Australia next year. If you're in Australia and have a spare bed, please get in touch <laughs> on New Zealand. I am going to fly out almost immediately after the coronation, which is, um, I think the coronation is the 6th of May. I'm probably going to fly on the 9th. And I'm going to return on about the... 15th or 17th or 18th of June, something like that, depending on exact timings and what flights are and something like that. So a bit over a month. And I'm intending to go to at least Perth, um, Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney and Wellington. And I may go to extra places as well if you're in one of those extra places and you have a spare bed. Um, so get in touch. Really, I just want to meet Australian and New Zealand fans. That's all I'm doing. So, yeah. Really looking forward to it. And in order to support that, I'm going to have a pre-trip report, which will be available at Easter. You heard it here first. Which conventions are you going to go to? Don't know if there's going to be a convention. 
going to do the trip anyway because it's time. We need to run a northbound race for 2024. So I need to travel next year. So Australian fans, get planning your conventions. Come on. I have been poking, but it's been... I mean, the the New, Ze- the New Zealand NatCon is going to be virtual, and I will be at it, but it's going to be virtual. Okay, so, SmofCon. That was a contested SmofCon uh, this time. I uh, tried looking this up on the internet, but I couldn't find much detail, but Liz knows about it, so take it away, Liz. Oh, I only know about it because of what I read about it on the internet, which is mostly on Facebook. Yeah, I think I did check on Fast 770 and I couldn't find any uh, writing about this. So uh, what what I saw was a a bid was proposed for Smofcon in Sweden. So there was a bid proposed for Stockholm. But there was also a second bid that was set up that had been set up a bit earlier, I think, for Providence, Rhode Island. And it appears that the Providence bid won. I think they were both set up at fairly short notice. So hopefully Sweden will bid again because it would be nice to have uh, Smofcons in Europe every so often. I'm, I know there's one in there's one in 2020. Alison went. Alison was a Smofcon 2020 in Lisbon. Uh, no, it's 2021. Nothing was in 2020. Oh, okay. Yes, fair enough. And so, yeah, it's nice to have them so often. I thought, I think it would have been nice to have one kind of uh, not long before a UK World Con, but maybe actually we're better having them slightly after UK World Cons than anyone who's got excited by uh, Glasgow can then continue to come to Smothville. So, Stockholm didn't win. It will be in Providence, but apparently they have committed to a substantial, like having a substantial hybrid con as well. Yeah, no, I'd have really liked it to have been in. Sweden, because I had infinite fun at the Lisbon Slothcon. I'd like to go to another European Slothcon. True, but one, maybe it will be uh, there after the 2024 Worldcon, which would be nice. And two, it may not be quite as nice weather um, in Stockholm in December as it was in Lisbon. I do have a problem with the Slothcon weekend, which I'm going to get to foreshadowing. Ooh, all right then. That was all I had to say on uh, Slothcons. Have fun, Providence, Rhode Island. Providence does sound like quite a nice place to go to for a convention, actually. I probably could be pretty good. I want to go there at some point. Uh, at some point, I want to go to all the places Lovecraft like wrote about. Uh, and obviously, Providence would be on that list. Wandering Shop. So, uh, Mastodon. We've all been masticating over on Mastodon, except for Liz, who hasn't. I've got an account. I just haven't actually done anything with it yet. Liz is, to be fair, the podcast Musk fan. So, you know, it makes sense. Oh, oh you take that back. <laughs> that is a joke too far. Are you Liz Batty at Mass.2? Yes. She got on the Wandering Shop, Liz. It's where all the cool kids are, by which I mean Alison and I. Because Wandering Shop was closed. Still is. It took ages to get on there. <laughs> Wandering Shop is still quite closed in that every week existing Wandering Shop members get a link that they can invite people and and I think it's like 50 a week or 100 a week. So it's growing slowly. But the last couple of times they've released a code, I have got a friend or two in on it. So if if you know me and you want to get on Wandering Shop, then get in touch. And when I have a an invite, I will get it to you. 
Um, but Wandering Shop is very nice because it is an instance. I think Chris Rose is the primary person behind it. Um, well done, Chris. Um, this is a good thing. It's a server primarily for science fiction and fantasy community generally. So including authors, editors and um, fans and readers. And obviously that makes it kind of, it's got a great feeling. It reminds me a bit of Recarts SF fandom and Recarts SF written if you're very old. Um, so the local the local feed is full of people saying stuff that's interesting. And I just really, really like it there. And Macedon itself Imagine Twitter without all the corporate shilling and politics. I mean, it can't last, obviously, but it's very, very nice at the moment. No, but it is It is basically quite good. Um, I was on another instance originally, which I also quite liked, but they defederated the big uh, server, and that meant that there were several people I wanted to follow and couldn't. And that was extremely annoying. If you don't know what that means, listeners, it's not important. And if you do, you understand why it's annoying. It means go and ask Alison. She'll tell you. In detail. But yes, no, Wandering Shop is good. And um, if you are in the science fiction fandom space, it is an instance which is designed for you to enjoy. So um, so yeah, it is a good instance to go for if there are signups. And like I say, um, Alison and I both have, both have um, access to the codes. So yeah, if you want to be on there, uh, let us know. And then when the codes come out, you have a very short window to get on it. But it's been lengthening recently. It's not been so bad. So I know Raj is on uh, Mastodon, on the mastodon.scot um, server. So there's like a Scottish one. Um, there's a bunch of different ones. It's cool. If you are on a Mastodon server, one of the things about Mastodon being run from the ground up by people rather than run by big industry is that that means that people who are probably people you know, if you're on a fairly small server, need money to keep it going. So do throw small amounts of money at the admins to keep your servers running because otherwise this entire business model is going to fail and we will go back to something where you don't pay anything except your soul to be on the your very soul Ooh. yeah i mean you you it, it is much better to just pay a small amount of money to get the thing that you want rather than um not paying anything and in return getting um a torrent of garbage advertising posts in your feed all of the time all right shall we do picks yeah Liz, what's your pick? Do you want to start with it? Yeah, so my pick is, I mean, I pick it not without reservations, but basically the only book I've read over the past few weeks is Stephen King's It, because it was on my Kindle. And so I thought, oh, that might be good. I'll start reading it. And when it's on your Kindle, you can't tell that it is actually 1500 pages. It's a very long book. (laughs) So basically, we had an entire trilogy. Yeah, it is an early Stephen King book I hadn't read. If you've read lots of Stephen King books, you kind of know what you are getting, which is small town American horror. But it's just a kind of really well done example of the form, I think. So it's got two intertwining plot strands, one in the late 1950s uh, and one in the 1980s. And and it kind of intertwines them really well. So you get this kind of um, impending sense of you know from the 1980s plot strand that in the 1950s they essentially went to kill the demon creature that lives beneath their town and basically ends up on a murder spree every 20 something years and from the fact they're back in 1980 you know that they did not actually do the job first time round. and basically it entwines all the plots and they build to the fact that you're getting the kind of first battle with this creature and the second battle 
kind of happening both at the end of the novel, but in totally different time strands. So you know where it's going to end up. And, it, you know, it's quite digressive. It spends a lot of time on the inhabitants of this small town and building up the small town feel. But I think it, it does pay off in the end, maybe not quite to the extent of needing 1500 pages, but I felt quite satisfied with it at the end of it. And it's just really good at this sort of individual scenes. Of There's a, a part where Mike, one of the, the children, they've been their kind of pre, pre-teens, goes off to the site of an explosion and basically is menaced by an enormous bird. And when I just say that, it sounds like it might be quite funny, but it's a really menacingly written section where he is in utter terror of this colossal bird, which is chasing after him and trying to kill him. And it's just full of kind of like little chapters like that, which do really well at building up this creeping sense of horror. If you read any Stephen King books, you probably know that's why you're reading Stephen King books, right? So yeah, still recommended, but very long. So I have a confession, which is I've never read any Stephen King. Oh, you probably should. Yeah, I knew this was coming. (laughs) John was like, yeah, yeah, I've never read any. And I should. What I want to do, so I know that there is a novella called The Mist. Yes. Which is very famous, I think. And I want to read that because um, I'm a parody of myself and it was the inspiration for one of the later Arkham Horror the Card Game scenarios. So I was like, oh, I should read that. And then I'm like, I should probably read more of his stuff given I quite like horror. Uh, so yes, at some point, I will get to it in my copious spare time. I have read a very small amount of Stephen King, and it's one of the things that helped form my view that I do not really like horror very much. And in fact, I tend to go off things if they have too much horror in them. So um, I'm not going to be reading a 1500-page horror novel anytime soon. But John should definitely read Stephen King. Oh, I've read Carrie. Carrie's amazing. I loved Carrie. Uh, I'd forgotten that. So you have read some Stephen King then? Yeah, yeah, we read it uh, in book club when I was an undergrad, and it was amazing. Very, very creepy. I very much enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, the thing about that, so I I have read The Mist. The thing about The Mist is that famously there is a film adaptation of The Mist, which changes the ending in a way I will not spoil, but is really very grim. Hey. Yeah, I think that's as as good a place as any to start. Yeah, basically don't start with one of his, you know, 1500 page works, although they are. You know, the stand is also pretty good. But yeah, Carrie, I think, would be would have been a place I would say you could start if I hadn't only read it. Or, you know, something like Misery is also good. Salem's Lot. Quite a lot of the early ones are pretty good. Mm-mm. Alison, do you want to do yours? So I had never been to Dragon Meat, which is a one day tabletop gaming convention in London. Um, For a couple of reasons. It's the Smofcon weekend, so... It- yeah, that's the thing. But also, um, I'd always gone to a big house party on that day. So it clashes with that. And at the moment, the big house party isn't happening. So that sounds like a good reason to go across London and go to a games convention. What what happened was that it's run by John Dodd, who is doing a site for a lot of conventions at the moment, including um, EasterCon. So and he said to the rest of us and also to the 24 committee, why don't you all come to Dragon Meet and I'll put your names on the door and um, give you a table and you can promote the EastCon. So we did that and we had a lot of fun. And we were in a lovely kind of science fiction area of the Dragon Meet trading halls with Third Vault Yarns and um, the BSFA and the BFS and Ian Waits, like Newcom Press and, and a few other things like that. And it was awesome. Um, and we talked to lots of people, some of whom were already coming to the EasterCon, some of whom said they would definitely join but hadn't got around to it yet, some of whom had um, 
heard about Eastercons but weren't sure they were for them and some of whom um, had never heard of Eastercons and some of those were like oh that sounds amazing that sounds wonderful so hopefully some of those will come and it was all pretty good um I had an accident at Dragon Meat oh no are you okay I am not okay. I was decluttering and I decided I would take a bag of games I did not want anymore for the Dragon Meat Bring and Buy sale and sell them. And I would definitely not buy any games and bring them home. And how did that go, Alison? I bought... How many games net did you acquire? I came home with seven more games that I took. Some of them were small. For content listeners, this was my birthday weekend and I had an enormous amount of birthday money and I bought fewer games than that. Yeah, but I think you bought more expensive ones because one of the things about these games is that they were incredibly cheap. Hopefully I will play them and they will, they will even go back to next year's Dragon Meat or I will pass them on to other people who would like them and they will not stay in my house forever, but they might do. But I feel like I have a lot of games in the house and they're mostly games from the 70s that are not very good and mixing them up for some more modern games some of which might be very good uh, is probably a good bet but it was so good had so much fun and um it's full of it's full of nerds full of full of our sorts of people sensitive fanish faces and and the trading halls are like a magic cave full of games it was very good there were an enormous number of people wanting to sell me very expensive dice and i was like how much is it reasonable to pay pay for dice and the answer is not that much i mean you got octothorpe dice what more do you need i like the dice that had liquid centers i thought liquid centered dice were pretty good have you seen the dice that look like baked beans oh i see the baked bean dice yeah they're horrible they're great <laughs> to that to dice i have not seen dice that look like baked beans but somebody was selling uh i will put a link in the show notes listeners they have, they're doing a Kickstarter for solid foam dice about that sort of size that you, you throw at people uh, as a game. And there's going to be a Kickstarter next year. And I'm like, oh, oh this, this is great. <laughs> this is awesome. For the listeners, Alison is holding her hand up about, you know, two or three inches long. Yeah, maybe about six, or six centimetres across, maybe seven. Because for all the readers now, you could have been holding your hands up like this, like three feet apart, which would also be fun, but different. The reason I think why the trading halls are so amazing is that the first Saturday in December is, if you were going to run an event focused around selling games crap, the first Saturday in December would be quite a good time to do that. Yep. Um, and the bring and buy. Oh, the bring and buy. And all credit to the people who'd sorted out the website for the bring and buy because you actually, you registered your games in advance with how much you wanted to sell them for. And it was a way easier than listing things on eBay, I'll tell you. And then when you got to the convention, they basically printed out barcode stick on your games in approximately one nanosecond. And then you could sit at your sales table for the EasterCon. Every so often you'd search through the list of available games by price from low to high and go, God, that looks like a bargain and nip round and buy it. So, yeah. I, I was in my happy place, which is buying crap to fill up my house that is already full of crap. Hey! No, I like games conventions. I haven't been to uh, Dragon Meat, but I have been to other games conventions, and they are a lot of fun. And there was an Arkham Horror event at Dragon Meat, uh, which apparently went very well. I didn't actually play any games because I didn't really have any time because we were on our table all day. And um... uh, the truest expression of the games convention, buying stuff while not playing anything. Also, I don't. I think if it was a two-day convention, I'd probably get some games in. And I used to love a games convention called StabCon, 
which when I went to it didn't really have any traders at all. It just had a load of people in a room. It didn't have any organised games. It didn't have any traders. It just had a load of people in the room playing games, and I really really like that. Stabcon is still Stabcon is still quite like that. So so I mean, I, you, and you just sit around wait, waiting for somebody to pull out a game that looked interesting, and then you go, "Oh, do you need players?" And they go, "Yes," and you sit down and play. And then a couple of hours later, you do it again until the end of the day. It's good. And then I think we all stayed at student accommodation that was some of the worst accommodation I've ever slept in, but, you know, that sort of thing. StabCon South is held at the Hilton Doubletree in Southampton. I went once, twice. I think I went once and then the pandemic happened. It was very sad. But it was a good convention. Uh, It had two traders and a lot of games. Uh, And I played a lot of Werewolf and it was pretty great. Games conventions are weird for me because I got into science fiction conventions and games conventions at roughly the same time. And I was like, oh, science fiction conventions are good, but like, what I really like is games conventions. And then I changed my mind because I kind of basically went, oh, I can play games anytime, but I can only get the science fiction convention experience at science fiction conventions. The thing I like about games conventions is playing games that haven't come out yet. So like I have a rule that I don't back things on Kickstarter unless I've played them. But games conventions are a very good way of playing games that are shortly coming to Kickstarter to see if you like them before they're on Kickstarter, for instance. Okay, so the great thing about having ignored the tabletop gaming hobby for the last 40 years is that there's an awful lot of games I haven't played yet. It's really good. Oh, no, that's fair. That is fair. When there are failure modes, like I played a game at the convention in 2019, which was amazing, and it still has not made it to Kickstarter. So I'm like champing at the bit. Yeah, I met Francis Tresham at... A games convention in about 1985 and he was like oh here's my follow-up game to Spanish Main which was his game at the time and um and we played that and it was really weird and that never better day anyway I am gonna pick a thing a series of 15 comics and a series of 13 comics and a series of three novels and a series of three YA novels and two mangas and some other bits and bobs and an audiobook because I'm picking Phase 1 of the Star Wars High Republic project, which I have finished reading. The people who write Star Wars books got together and they were like, it's really annoying that when we write Star Wars books about bits of Star Wars that are being done on telly and in the movies, the telly and movies keep contradicting the things we want to do. And wouldn't it be nice if we had a little bit of the universe we could play in where no one else is telling us what's going to happen? And so they did that. It's called the High Republic. It's about 200 years before um, the rest of Star Wars. And I finished it, and it is really good. I liked it a great deal. Basically focused around the Jedi at the height of their success, and the Republic are kind of forging out into the wider galaxy from the Core Worlds, and they hit upon a group of pirates called the Nihil, and it's basically about what ends up happening then. And then the last book is very sad, and uh, I spent ages reading it because it really stressed me out. It was very good. I'm just a coward. And then they're starting Phase 2. And Phase 2 is, weirdly, a prequel, which I guess makes sense because if you're going to do a three-act Star War, you start in the middle and then do the before bit and then do the after bit. Uh, And that is well established in Star Wars lore. (laughs) It's kind of what uh, Rogue One and Andor have done. And also, I will say, the audio production was amazing. It was full cast and it reminded me of like listening to like Radio 4 um, stuff and hearing that kind of thing done in audiobooks is really neat. And I hope there's more of that in the future. Um, although it will reignite the discussions about best dramatic presentation audio. Best audio presentation, Hugo, for the win. I mean, to be fair, I could submit it in the best long form category, but I don't think it would win compared to Severance and or everything everywhere all at once. So, you know. Do we have two more nominations for that category? I have to talk about this in our Hugo nomination episode in January. 
our listeners can write in. Write in, listeners. Anyway, that was the Old Thought Podcast. And it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And for those who don't know, Alison's ex is Mike Scott. Thank you very much for writing in, Mike. And and thank you for remaining on form. True to brand. <laughs> I divorced him for a reason, guys. <laughs> and it wasn't that. <laughs> I have a question. Is that staying in the podcast? <laughs> I mean, I think I divorced him for a reason, guys. But it wasn't that. It's fine, right? I don't know. That's what I'm asking. <laughs> I'm happy. If I, ha- if I hadn't watched it in the podcast, I wouldn't have said it. Love you, Mike. I feel it is unfair that he would never get a name. We do have to give him, you know, no one else is on the podcast. No one else's letters are oh, referred to in, in terms of their relationship to the podcasters. Elsa Spaniard would would just be wife. My soulmate, Christopher J. Garcia, <laughs> wrote in. The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin MacLeod and Competech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.